you would take your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3, we have left Genesis behind. And what has transpired in between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is 400 years of history. When we last saw, God gave the approval for Jacob to go ahead and to move his people into Egypt. The famine was severe in the land of Canaan. The famine was severe in Egypt. But the amazing thing about Egypt was is that years before, God had prompted Joseph and set him up for success so that he would go about wisely planning during years of abundance in order to have stores and stores of grain for food during seven years of the worst famine that that land had ever known. Joseph being there because he'd been betrayed by his brothers, then revealed himself to his brothers, he'd been there about 22, 23 years, and called for his father to come to Egypt so that he could take care of them and settle them in a land that had a lot going on. Enough for your herds, massive pastures, waters flowing through. It was like a little paradise. And it was so nice that it was segmented so they wouldn't be influenced by the Egyptian idolatry could still have their minds focused on who Yahweh is, Yahweh God, okay? Now, in doing that, being set aside in that time, Joseph eventually passes away. The Pharaoh of that time who approved it, who, I mean, you read the end, you're like, who is this Pharaoh? He's definitely not the same guy going on in the Exodus, but he approves it. He welcomes them. He's glad to have them there. He gives them places of privilege and abundance, but then he passes away too. And time moves on. And let it be known, one of the major problems that we face often is we haven't bothered to pass on the history of what's happened in time past. And so we think a lot of times we're addressing a brand new problem, and we do so ignorantly because the past has not been passed on to us. Does that make sense? So now we have a new Pharaoh. He doesn't know anything about Joseph. All that's gone away now. But what he does know is that he's got a lot of people in his land who weren't initially there. And there are lots of them. In fact, I think the count is about 2 million. Okay, now, does anybody remember how many they were when they migrated over that direction? 70. You went from 70 to 2 million in 400 years, right? Amazing. And even God said, you go there, I'm going to grow you. That's exactly what he's done. So the Pharaoh doesn't want this to get out of hand. How are we going to handle it? Well, the first thing he does is said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to enslave everybody. Make them servants. Make them build things. In fact, we find out that they built two cities. Uh, Pithom, I think it is, and Ramses are, are what they built. Oh, I can't remember where that's located because we're not really, yeah. Verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11 tells where, where they, they built it. And they built those cities for nothing more than just for Pharaoh to store his stuff. Can you imagine being put into servitude? And not only that, but you're building storage spaces. That's the low of the low right there, right? But in doing so, that doesn't work. In fact, he finds out that when he puts them into servitude, they only reproduce more. That didn't work. So what's the second thing? He has a meeting with the Hebrew midwives. Every time a male from the Hebrews is born, kill him. Sounds like China, doesn't it? Kill him. Get rid of them. But the Hebrew midwives feared Yahweh God 
and didn't do it. And it's so funny because the Pharaoh says, didn't we have this conversation? Don't you know what you were supposed to do? And I love the answer. She says, these women give birth so quickly, they got them, the kids are out before we even got there. What a good lie. I mean, let's just be honest. But in turn, in turn, Pharaoh says, okay, we got to come up with something different. So now, every household of the Hebrews, when you have a male son, cast them into the Nile. Now, we're familiar with this from Sunday school. How many people are familiar with this story from Sunday school, right? Right, we put together a basket. Uh, Moses' mother was able to hold on to him for about three months, but you know, after a while, he got a little unruly. We all know that, right? So I got to put him in the, no, I'm just kidding. It's not why she put him in the basket. But she, she couldn't hide him any longer. Couldn't keep him hidden. So when she sent it down, it just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter was out bathing that day at the Nile. She comes across the child, and I'm sure that the Lord pinched Moses a little bit to cause him to cry. Why? Because it pulled on a woman's sympathies. That's the way the Lord works, man. He loves it. And so she adopts him as his own. And not only this, but Moses' mother came out grade A okay on this. Because Moses' sister shows up and says, hey, do you want me to go get a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? Sure, I'll go get Moses' mom. Not only did she get to nurse her own child that she bore, she got paid. She got paid to do it. So Egypt is paying her to nurse her own child on behalf of Pharaoh's daughter. God is good. See how that works? Now, Moses grows up, and it doesn't seem to be anything that his heritage is hidden from him at all. And again, this is all chapters 1 and 2. I didn't want to spend too much time in it because 3 and 4 is really where we're going to be at today. But in doing so, he begins to see a lot of the oppression, Egyptians oppressing, uh, oppressing Israelites. And he gets so mad at one point that he takes an Egyptian and he kills him and decides he's going to hide him in the sand. Pharaoh finds out about it, and immediately Pharaoh wants his life, and Moses flees. Moses is 40 years old. He flees out to the desert of Midian. If you're familiar with your geography at all, you'll have Egypt there and the Nile coming down. Then you have this wilderness section here, and we know Mount Sinai, right? It's down here in the south of that part, if you're familiar with that at all. On the other side of the gulf, on the other side of Mount Sinai, is Midian, where he settles. And he actually comes across a guy who's a priest, and he didn't want to be lonely, so he got on shepherdsonly.com, and he decided to get him a wife. Anybody seen those commercials? They just get worse and worse as time goes on, don't they? Makes you want to throw your TV out on the curb. So, But anyway, he gets a wife. It happens to be the priest of Midian's daughter. And for 40 years, he shepherds sheep. Now, this is extremely interesting, because if you remember last week, Egyptians found shepherds, what? Detestable. They're disgusting. They're horrible. We don't want anything to do with them. And that's what kept that line of the Jews pure and no intermarriage going on. Now here is Moses, cast out of his country. He's a refugee, essentially. He's a murderer, is what he is. And now he is shepherding sheep, just like his people. That's when we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. Now, some of you might have a little number next to where it says west side there. And the little number that I have in my translation here says the rear part of the wilderness. Now, if you were to look at that map, the little 
water line here that separates Sinai from Midian, he actually goes all the way up and crosses over into this area. Now you say, that's a lot of distance. Why in the world would he go there? He is in the desert. Pastures are few, and if you one thing, you, you got to be a good shepherd, you got to keep your sheep alive, right? So he goes wherever the pastures are so that they can feed. It wouldn't have been unusual in that day. And it says that he came to Horeb. Horeb is a mountain within the Sinai Peninsula. So Sinai would be a collection of mountains there, and Horeb is the particular mountain that he comes to. And it says, the mountain of who? Of God. Very important. Keep it in your mind. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. This is what is known in Scripture as a theophany. Very important to understand. A theophany is any time that in a situation, God shows up in a form of some sort. Why? Because God is spirit. God does not naturally have a form in and of himself. But when he decides to manifest himself, Genesis chapter 18, right before Sodom and Gomorrah, he actually manifests himself in the appearance of a human, and he has the two angels that are flanking him when he appears to Abraham, and he sits down and eats with him. Very interesting account. In this account here, he manifests himself in a little small shrub, probably thorny, that's burning on fire, but it never burns up. It just continually burns. This is a theophany. Very important. He appears. Important to understand. So notice what happens here. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now stop. Why did Moses remove his sandals? It's holy ground. It's kind of like when you ask people to remove their shoes when they step into your house so they don't mess up your carpet, right? It's a sign of respect is essentially what it is. I can't tell you how many commentaries I looked at that said the reason was is because the bush was electric with fire. So he didn't want some kind of grounding with electricity to... That's not, exactly, that's what I thought. The reverse of that would be true. But it's not what the text says, is it? Yeah, so Mr. Tesla can go on, right? So notice, verse 6. He said also, now watch this, extremely important. I am, what tense? Present tense. I am who? The God of your Father. Now don't lose sight. Some of you have not been with us since June. That's okay. We covered a lesson towards the beginning where it talks about that when you talk about who God is and you use the words Elohim, you are actually talking about God or God's little g with an S added. Little g with an S added has the idea of demons is actually what it is that manifest themselves in such a way as to where idols are formed to them and they are worshipped. And I'm probably next week or in two weeks going to make those notes available again so you can just go back and see that so you all know that I'm not crazy, okay? It's actually all throughout the Bible you find it. But the reason why God, Elohim, identifies himself in a specific way is so that Moses 
can grab a hold of something tangible. Why? Because it's been 400 years that they've been in this place. It's not their own. So notice, he says, first off, I am the God of your father. Now, what does that tell us? Number one, it tells us that he was previously known in Moses' family somewhere. Everybody with me? But here's the next thing that is significant. And if you don't get this right, I'm going to put down my Bible and go home, okay? Say, praise God. No. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What? Is God communicating by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We read that a lot in the Old Testament, don't we? How he identifies himself. No. No. What? Lineage, yes, but there's something specific about those three people. What did we study? The promises. The covenants. I'm not just the God who your descendants have known. And see, that's good because I get to keep preaching. But I'm also the God who made the Abrahamic promise with Abraham, and I made it again with Isaac, and I made it again with Jacob. I am the covenant-keeping God. Now, this is important because there is no supposed deity in all of known history that has ever made an agreement, a contract with human beings. Never. Never. In fact, every religion in the world usually has this idea of, what can you do for me? See, this is what makes Yahweh God of the Bible different. I promise to do this for you, and I will see it through. Very different. So immediately when he says that to Moses, immediately Moses is going to, he's not ignorant of his history, immediately he's going to think, the covenant-keeping God. The Abrahamic covenant. We're talking about land. We're talking about seed. We're talking about blessing. That's what we're talking about. And notice that he moves on and he says, Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Everybody see how it just dawned on him who he's talking to? He gets it. History comes flooding up for him. So notice he moves on, verse 7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of who? My people. Notice that Yahweh claims ownership of them. They are mine, and they are being afflicted. And, and, and real quick, there's going to be some questions probably that you're going to ask in your mind. They've been afflicted for a while now. Maybe not the whole 400 years, but there came a point when this Pharaoh enslaved them. Why didn't God stop this to begin with? We're going to talk about suffering next week and why God allows it. He says here, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Everybody see that word deliver? You could easily use the word saved there. I have come to save them. I've come to rescue them. In fact, overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, the word for save there means deliver and rescue. It doesn't necessarily, the majority of the time, talk about go to heaven when you die. But the idea here is a physical rescue. I am here to liberate. Yahweh God is a liberator. And that's what he's looking to do. He's highly concerned. Notice this. Not just to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land 
from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. A lot of names, right? What's he saying here? What is Yahweh telling Moses? I'm ready to keep this covenant. I'm ready to see it fulfilled. I'm ready to bring it to fruition. Now, put your finger here. Turn back to Genesis 15. Abraham appear, or God appears to Abraham. Remember, he tells him, look out at the stars, count them if you may, so will be your descendants. Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. How are we accredited with righteousness? We believe in Christ. We are given righteousness, not of works of our own, but all the work that he has done is sufficient before the Father. But look at chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a what? Covenant. And what is a covenant, biblically speaking? It's a contract. It is an agreement that he makes. And uh, to Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt. What is the river of Egypt? The Nile. Uh Uh-oh, we're treading into Egypt territory. Yeah, God owns it. Surprise, right? He's the real estate agent for that plot of land. So he's got that part. But notice, not only that, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's a lot of land. That is going to be yours. And just in case you're a little foggy on what land I'm talking about, verse 19, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Everywhere where those places live now, Abram, I'm giving it to you. And if you remember this covenant, what makes it unique is it is unconditional. It rests upon the faithfulness of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Only he passed through the pieces. Very important. So go back to Exodus 3. When we see a listing like that, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, he's bringing Moses' understanding back to this point, back to realizing these are promises I've made before. In other words, you can hold me to my word. I am God. I will always keep it. He's ready to see this come about. So verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, what is that therefore? Because of this suffering, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. The scariest thing that will ever happen in your life is God calls you to do something. Now see, this is tricky. Because we love to know, no, no. But when it comes to do, 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 well, Lord, I have a list. Here are some things that need to be satisfied on my end before I will trust you and walk forward with you. You think God looks back and goes, man, I'm so happy. You think he smiles at that? Do you know that everybody in here is called to something? Everyone in here is called to something, and here's the amazing thing. Everyone in here is called to something that is beyond themselves. We are never called to us. Sometimes we think our favorite minister is us. 
Nobody minister to me like me. I know exactly what I want. Calgon, take me away, right? It's kind of the attitude we have because it's pleasurable and we're satisfying everything going on in our lives except the things that really need to be happening. Moses, you've been off the scene in Egypt for 40 years. You're 80 years old. He was called when he was 80. You know what that tells me? Age don't matter to God. But I'm too old to serve. Shame on you. Shame on you. Tom ain't even 80 yet. God has called Tom to something. By the riches of his grace and the wonders we do not know, God has called Tom to something, right? Imagine that. He's called every one of us to something. The agitator. I'm pretty sure that's not holy or righteous in any sense of the word. But, Moses, go to Pharaoh. God, you mean the guy who's in control of everything right now on earth? Yeah, that guy. Go to him. And go to him and let him know that he's got a hand against the neck of my people. And he needs to back up and let him go. Now, I'm sure Moses didn't sit there and go, you know what, God, that'll work. And we know he didn't think that. And here's the reason why. We are going to look at five objections that Moses gives God. And what's interesting is, is as I was reading through them, I realized that Moses is more like me and you than what I'm comfortable with. Verse 11, objection number one. But Moses said to God, this is everybody's favorite. Because it sounds pious and humble, but you could probably fertilize your lawn with it, okay? Let's just be honest. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I mean... God, who am I? I'm nobody special. I don't have any reputation. I don't really have any skills that you could use, God. I mean, my life really hasn't amounted to much if you think about it. I'm a nobody. Let me ask you a question. Does God love nobodies? Oh, man. God uses nobodies and makes them somebodies, doesn't he? but they can only be somebody's for his glory. Noses, notice, notice, that's a tongue twister. Noses, notice. See, I can't even say it. Notice Moses' objection. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, here's your answer, Moses, I'll tell you. He said, certainly, I will what? Be with you. Now stop for a second. Is that a sufficient answer in and of itself? The answer is, when I call you to do something, I go with you. I'm with you. Because see, here's the scary part. A lot of times we run after the things that we think God has called us to and what we realize when we get in the thick of it and we're doing work for his name and all this stuff, we realize that he's not with us in the work. 
You know why that is? Because he didn't call you to do what you're doing. That's a scary place to be. That should be a very sober realization of what's going on in life. But notice, he promises Moses, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you. I'm going to give you some evidence to let you know that I've walked with you the entire way. That I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, stop. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, is the result guaranteed? Notice that. You think Moses missed this the first time he heard it? I think he did. But notice, when the Lord speaks, and I know this in a newsflash for anybody, he speaks truth. The question is, are we paying attention to exactly what he said? When you bring these people out, success guaranteed, the result is sure. Notice what he says here. You shall worship God at this mountain. Moses, the whole reason why I didn't make grass grow over there in Midian and kind of followed your flock along all the way over here in this weird part that you're not used to is because I wanted to show you the exact place that the result of what I've called you to do is going to be accomplished right here. The sign, the proof that I am with you is because you are going to stand here with everybody in your lineage and heritage and you are all going to worship me because I am God. That's cool. Talk about God doesn't want to faith. It's blind faith. You don't know. It's full of evidence. Full of evidence. Just got to be willing to see it. Notice it says here, objection number two. Why do you give objection number two? Because God answered objection number one. And he answered it really well. And that just doesn't work out with my schedule, God. I got sheep to tend to. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers. Now stop. That's exactly how God introduced himself to Moses, right? First thing he said, I'm the God of your fathers. Okay? So I'm going to go there, and I'm going to tell them this. And I'm going to say, he has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them now hindsight is 2020 isn't it if i could have walked up with my bible to moses i would have been like now moses in chapter 3 verse 6 god said here i'm the god of your father the god of abraham isaac and jacob it should be sufficient that should be the calling card that's enough but god it's before he wrote it yes technical guy but notice notice God takes the time to thoroughly explain so that there's no confusion. Here's what he says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. How many people have read that or heard that before? How many people had the biggest question mark in the world appear over your head when you read it and, and, and saw it? Everybody, just me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Praise God for humble saints. See, I can tell who prayed 1 John 1, 9 and who didn't. But yes, I'm terrible, yes, it's okay to not know something. It's okay, right? I am who I am. And notice they put it in all caps. They want us to know, right? And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, what tense? Present tense. Has sent me to you. What is his objection? The second objection we have going on here, where's my authority? I'm just a shepherd guy. I've been removed from those people for 40 years. 
My own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, have not seen me for 40 years. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, hey, guys, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what's going to go on. Where's my authority? What reason should they say, yeah, we're going to listen to that and we're going to see this happen and we're going to follow that guy? Why in the world should they listen to me? Here's the question. Is God's name enough? See, that's really the question. In fact, it's interesting because when he uses the word I am, it's the word Yahweh. It's the word in Hebrew that means to be. Or the idea is, I am the self-existing one. I need nothing. That's the idea. He is the ultimate. He is the creator. So when he says this, I am who I am, he's actually saying Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And the reason why it's like that is because they didn't have any vowels at that time, and a lot of Jews didn't even dare say his name. He is Yahweh. Now, why is this important? When we saw the word Yahweh before, we saw that this is God's personal name. Elohim is his name as far as being a God, and that's what we use. But when, in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, when he wanted to get personal, he came in and he gave this brand new name, which we often translate in our Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is Yahweh. And it is his personal name. He actually is going to call it his memorial name. This shows that he is intimately wanting to work with people is what he's trying to communicate here. Now, why is this important? Interesting thing, if you want to write it down, it is in your notes. But very interesting thing. This name Yahweh had not been spoken since Genesis chapter 32, verse 9 by Jacob. He spoke it one more time in Genesis 49.10 whenever he was giving the pronouncements on all of his children, each child. And when he made a pronouncement over Dan, he gave the word Yahweh. There's not a record in Scripture that any of the sons of Jacob ever spoke the name Yahweh. It rolled off the scene. 400 years had passed and this name Yahweh was gone in history. It was simply the the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God takes the initiative to hear saying, you want authority? Let me give you authority. Yahweh. That's the name. It is the creator God. It is the God that walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is the one that they had intimate fellowship with. It's a name that has weight. Now, maybe you don't fully get the brunt of how that matters, but imagine a name that had paramount significance and you just don't hear of it for years and years and years. You ever had that happen? Somebody, maybe they bring up, hey, do you remember such and such from high school? (gasps) Yeah. I just found out they passed away. What? You see what I'm saying? You had not thought of that name in years. All of a sudden, it gets your attention and it brings back Maybe emotions or thoughts that you had at that time about that person. It's no different here. And especially for a people that are under oppression, it is a very welcome name for rescue. Why? Because if they need anything right now, they need a God who loves them. They need a God who cares for them. And they need a God that wants to set them free. That's their problem. Everybody see that? So when they come up and say, hey, what's my authority here? What do I say, God? Yahweh. That's what you tell them. Now watch. He doesn't just give them that. Verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, stop. What's it say? The Lord, capital what? L-O-R-D, which is the name? There it is. 
Notice that. Yahweh, the God, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations, all generations of Israelites. I am the covenant-keeping, personal, intimate God. Everybody get this? Okay, pray about it. Maybe it'll hit you a little bit more. Be good. Verse 16, notice what he does. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, now notice, get the leadership of the people together. Start with leadership. Why? Because leaders do what? Do we know? Lead. Leaders lead. So get the leaders, tell them exactly what I've said, and they will stand beside you in leading the people in this direction. And what do you say to them? Notice again, exact same thing as 15. Yahweh the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. It's one thing for Moses to get the covenant reminder of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's another thing for the people who are in the midst of oppression to not just hear the name Yahweh, but to have this promise of the covenant brought up. And why, why is God wanting to set them free? He doesn't just want to set them free and like drop them off at the mall or something like that. He wants to set them free and he wants to bring them triumphantly into a land that he had promised them. He wants to fulfill his word. He wants to remain true to the truth. That's the idea. And so he moves on, verse 17. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of the uh, of Egypt. <laughs> so I said, it's not a good day. Everybody hear me flubbing this bass up here? <laughs> I was about ready to throw it out the window and go home. So anyway, so I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. Tell them that. Tell the leaders that. Why? Because the leaders would remember this incident with Abraham that we looked at in Genesis 15. Notice, God wants to constantly recall their minds back to what he had previously said. Why? Because everything else is untrue and a lie. The only thing that you can stand firmly on and move forward with any confidence is only what God has said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the living God. You want to talk about where sustenance is? You want to talk about where uplifting is? You want to talk about where self-esteem is found? It's not found in everything that we participate in. It's found only in God's word. And that's what he's constantly trying to do from beginning to end is hammer into our noggins. You can trust me. I will always do what I've said every time. Verse 18, they will pay heed to what you say. Now stop. They will do what? Success. Here's what we have so far. Is Israel going to come out of Egypt and worship God? Success is guaranteed. When he goes to the elders, are they going to listen to him? Success is guaranteed. How did God get so smart? Who taught him how to read the future? He go down to Madame Cleo and get his palm read or something? How'd that work out? No. It's because he knows all things, doesn't he? He knows all things. He's exercising foreknowledge here, knowing things before they will happen. Now, this is important because we're going to hit a hiccup here, and I want to show you how it works. Notice, he says here, 
They will pay heed to what you say, verse 18. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt. Notice they all go together. That had to make Moses feel a little bit better, right? It wasn't just him. And it said here, the Lord, Yahweh, right? The Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And that would fulfill the sign that was promised to Moses in verse 12. Now notice, we have to give God a name to Pharaoh. Why is that? Does Egypt worship many gods at this time? Many gods, little g, plural. Now this is different. This is Yahweh, that's his name. He is the Elohim. He is God of all things. He is God of all. Very different. Verse 19, but, now watch this. I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. There's a ton of people who immediately grab this verse right here and go, see, God set Pharaoh up for failure. Is that what this says? No, it doesn't say it. God says, if I'm looking at the situation, what I know about this is that Pharaoh is going to have to have a strong hand against him before he ever begins to let you guys go. Notice that God is not setting Pharaoh up to fail. That's not what it is. He is seeing how Pharaoh is going to respond to this situation, and he's letting Moses know beforehand. Why is he letting Moses know beforehand? Because when you get all psyched up and jazzed about going to see God's will done, and you get everybody on board with you, and you start talking about the authority that you have, and you start talking about, I'm a nobody, but God's going to make me a somebody, and you start listing off the reasons that God gave you as to why you're called to something, he's good to let you know where the failure is going to happen. Why? So you don't lose sight, and you're not caught by surprise. You ever set out to do something, and when it didn't go your way, you got discouraged and you quit? He is preventing burnout. I'm letting you know up front, Moses. I'm giving you the answer ahead. He's not going to listen to you. Don't let that deter you from being obedient. That's the lesson. So he says here, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he'll let you go. And just like God, notice what it says. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Okay, pause. We're going to march up there, the slaves. We're going to say, hey, Yahweh said, let us go. He's not going to do it. Then Yahweh is going to throw miracles at you. That will be such a strong arm that then you'll let us go. And then we're going to have favor with the people that just got smoked. Is that like God? Notice that's not a kind. It doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make sense to you? No, that's just God doing what God does. But notice that. I'm going to give you favor with the Egyptians. It shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, okay? But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptian. All the women said, oh, I, I can handle that, right? You mean we're going to go shopping? You mean people are just going to give us stuff? They're going to throw jewelry at me? Praise Jesus. Wash the windows. Praise Jesus, right? All of a sudden, revival broke out. But isn't that how God does things? I'm not just going to set you free. I'm going to set you free and set you up for success. 
I'm not just going to set you free. I'm going to give you abundance in the situation. Why? So you can glorify me because it's a reflection of my goodness and love towards you. Now, chapter four, verse one. Because you know Moses sitting there thinking, okay, he answered objection number two. This is all sounding real good. But I still got reasons why I don't need to do what God tells me to do, right? Just like me. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord's not appeared to you. The fear of not being believed. When you have something to say, when God's called you to do something, you're going to get doubters. You're going to get skeptics. You're going to get people that's going to tell you it's not going to work. There's no way. It's too much. I'll never forget the time when I told my my parents, yeah, Beth and I are going to leave youth ministry. We're going to go plant a church. And I remember my mom said, have you prayed about this at all? right? She's scared to death. I didn't have a mortgage. Now I got a mortgage. I didn't have to mow my lawn. Now I had to mow my lawn. My mom knew my struggles, right? Have you prayed about this? A scary time. It's what God called us to do. Okay, right? It's like you tell she's not confident, but all of a sudden her prayer life got spiked up real big, right? So notice, What if no one believes me? What if I got skeptics? What if I got doubters? What if in me setting out, wanting to do what you want to do, people are going to come against me? How am I going to handle that, God? How am I going to walk forward in confidence? Verse 2, the Lord said to him, here's the answer. What's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I love it. Ah, gone, right? Again, Moses is more like me than I care to admit. I'd be running too. Yeah, exactly. But notice verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. And all God's people said, what? Right? Why is that dangerous? Because when you grab them by the tail, they're going to swoop around and bite you. God's crazy. What? But notice the little dash there. So he stretched out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Now stop for a second. I love that Moses is exercising faith right now. Okay, God, you tell me to do this? That's really messed up, but okay. I'm going to do it. But notice the little dash there is because it breaks the quotation of what's being said, and it continues the quotation in verse 5. Notice, that they may what? Believe. Stop for a second. Notice that this is a belief and unbelief problem right here. Everybody see that? It's about making them believe. It's about giving them evidence so that they can have confidence in having faith in what's going on with Moses. That they may believe that Yahweh, the Elohim of their fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob have appeared to you. And the Lord furthermore said to them, now watch this, put your hand into your bosom, stick it inside of your robe here. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. You wonder what that's like? Look out your window tonight at 8 o'clock, right? And he says here, then he said again, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put out his hand in his bosom again, and he took it out of the bosom, and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now watch the Lord's comments in verse 8. If they will not believe you, if, contingency, right? 
They could or they couldn't. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, first sign was the snake and the staff, right? Notice it says here, they may, they may, it might happen, they may believe the witness of the last sign. If sign one doesn't convince them, sign two is to further convince them. Everybody see what God's doing here. God is giving evidence as to why Moses, a murderer refugee that's been off the scene for 40 years, should have any credibility when he speaks the ancient name of Yahweh. Everybody see this? Are we putting it together? Who's asleep? Okay, praise God. All right, verse 9. But if they will not believe even these two signs, which means there might be a lot of people that it takes three signs to get through to them. Does that resonate with anybody? Right? You know those knuckleheads, right? It's me. Exactly. Notice, but if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God, why you got to be so gross? Why does God got to be so gross with that? Is he trying to get people's attention? I love it. God will go to whatever lengths he needs to to get my attention and your attention. Why? Because he wants to be believed. That's the reason why. Notice, that's how he answers this objection. Now, verse 10, objection number four. Good grief, Moses, right? How much does it take? As long as it takes. Don't, don't, stop, pause for just one second. Don't act like Moses ain't you, okay? Don't act like it. God has called every single person, and we've used at least two of these objections somewhere along the way, okay? So don't act like it's not you. If we haven't hit your objection yet, we will. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God, I don't have the credentials. I don't have the degree. God, I'm from Kentucky. I don't talk so well. All right? Case in point. God, there's something that I'm lacking. I don't have what it takes to meet the standards of what you're calling me to do. I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. My etiquette's not that great. I don't know how to behave in those situations. God, this is every reason to disqualify me because I don't have what it takes. Use that objection before? I'm inadequate because of what I lack. I don't have the training. I don't have the smarts. I don't have the whatever. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, here's the answer. Who has made man's mouth? I don't know about you, but that's worth taking lipstick and writing on the mirror in your bathroom. Who has made man's mouth? Exodus 4, 11. We are so quick to disqualify ourselves, we forgot who set us in the position to be used. We forgot who intricately designed us for his purposes. Who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing 
or blind? Is it not I? And notice what he uses. What's he use? Yahweh. Is it not I, Yahweh? Does God not set people up in their lives where they can be used? See, here's the amazing thing. God's setting everybody up to be used for his glory. The problem is we don't want to be used. That's the real issue. The problem is, is that when the call comes, the excuses are abundant and we refuse to step in line. Like Moses. Verse 12, now then go. Notice what he says. And I, heavy underline, even I, notice because it's repeated, it's emphatic will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. You don't need to worry about all that training. You just need to be obedient and trust that the Lord's going to give it to you. That's the idea. Believe who he is, is essentially what's going on. Oh, verse 13, objection number five. And this is the objection. See, I love this objection because we all have it in common. We may be peppered out one through four, but number five, we all sit in that boat and just row it on down the river. And it kind of, we kind of, you may not grasp it a little bit in the NASB, but let's talk about what it says. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. That almost sounds like he's like, yeah, God, let's go. Yeah, God, send them, do your thing, God. But what does verse 14 say? Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Wait a second. It sounded like Moses was starting to hold a pep rally. Why is God so upset all of a sudden? Exactly. Because Moses is saying, God, anybody but me. Anyone else, please. God, I can think of a million more qualified people to do what you've called me to do. They're going to suit your purposes so much better than I would. They're going to accomplish such greater things than anything I would. Stop. Does being obedient God have anything really to do with us? No, it doesn't. It has the fact that he wants to use nobodies for his purposes. God's in the business of nobodies. God's in the business of using every single person so this idea of send somebody else send somebody else no why because i didn't pick them to do what i want you to do i chose you to fulfill this mission he says here then the anger of the lord burned against moses and he said is there not your brother aaron the levite you remember aaron who you left back in egypt he's around I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and to put these words in his mouth. And I, emphatic because it's repeated, even I will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. You know what the answer to this objection is? Anybody but me? Here's the beautiful thing about God. When he calls you to do ministry, you don't do ministry alone. 
There is no lone ranger evangelism. It doesn't work. There is no lone ranger discipleship. It fails at every time. The body of Christ is called a body for a reason. Many members join together and unified. Why? So that you're never serving God alone. Never. Never. If the fear is anybody but me, take confidence in the fact that when God calls you to something, he calls you somebody also to rub shoulders with in the midst of it to be that very real life encouragement to you. Now let's think back through these objections. Objection number one that we dealt with, I'm of no reputation and no skill. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe that's been your reason. Number two, where's my authority? Who am I going to say sent me? Is God's name enough? Doesn't matter. Is it going to be able to get the job accomplished? Now stop for a second. The world isn't going to grasp this. They're not going to get it. But we're not out trying to please the world. We're out trying to win the world because that's exactly what God's called us to do. How about the third one? What was the third objection? Chapter 4, verse 1. Well, when I get out there, when, when I do what you, if I'm going to step forward and do what you call me to do, nobody's going to believe me. I'm going to have skeptics. They're going to tear me down. I'm going to have doubters. Yeah, you will. Just because you have doubters doesn't mean that God became less true. See how that works? How about the next one? Verse 10. I'm not good with words. I'm not educated. I don't have degrees. I don't have fancy letters after my name. God said, doesn't matter. I'm the one that's going to be working with you. And that's what's interesting. You're exactly right. Where was Moses brought up and raised? Egypt. Yeah, he went to Pharaoh University. He did. He graduated with a PhD in Sphinx. I don't know. It's not like he was ignorant. He was at the best school money could buy at that time. In fact, the word here means he was heavy of, dung, of, of tongue. He was slow, heavy of speech. Maybe he just didn't talk too well. Case in point, right? <laughs> that means God couldn't use him. And what's the last objection? He was a Levite too, yes. But what's the last objection though? God, anybody but me. Anybody but me. Anybody but me. Why is that dangerous? It's disobedient, yeah. But why is that dangerous? He doesn't believe that God can do it. Because it's a belief and unbelief issue is ultimately what it comes down to. If you are here, you are called. Period. Do I know specifically what God has called you to? No. But God never called anyone to be saved and then to sit. That never happens. I've never seen the not on the log Christian in Scripture. I've never seen, God called me to rock on the front porch and whittle. No. He didn't. He didn't. He called you to share the gospel. Do you work somewhere? There's your mission field. Part of a club, part of the Rotary Club, something like that. There's your mission field. I don't care if you're hanging out at the Eagles Club. I don't care if you're part of the VFW. Man, supper clubs are big around here. That's weird. Maybe you go to those things every Friday night. I don't know. Whoever you eat fish with every week, that is your mission field. God brings us in contact with people every day. And there is one of two things that are true. 
They are either alive or they are dead. God has called every one of us, at least, specifics aside, at least, to share about the new life in Jesus Christ with people. Every person's been called to that. Now, you might have excuses. God, I I don't talk very well. Well, anybody else needs to go but me. Well, you know, I just don't know that your name's enough to be the authority I need in this situation. But none of those excuses worked with Moses, did they? I guarantee you they're not going to work with us. And when we give him the no and when we walk away, I promise you, you have missed out on God doing God things in your life for his glory. Now, I can't think of anything more tragic for a Christian than to live their life and God is not doing anything through you. If that's where you're at right now, maybe you've said no to the call. Maybe that's a problem. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the example of Moses and a man who would become highly revered. We see his beginnings, his first interaction with you, full of excuses, separated from everything he'd commonly known, with a murder resting on his conscience, called to go back and face the leader of all of the known world at that time, and to do so in your name. Father, whatever odds we think that we're against, they're probably nothing compared to that. But it's definitely what the enemy would like to do to keep us complacent and to keep us under his thumb. Father, if fear is ruling our lives, if fear is keeping us from being all that you've called us to be. Father, provoke us, convict us to confess that to you so that we can be confident in your name and be all about your will and your purposes to use us to make a difference in this life. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.